Let us pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can look at your word and as we look at this idea of faith from Hebrews 11. I pray that the thoughts, words, and ideas shared be yours, your spirit be among us and teach us and all that is said give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, is the mic working? No, no. Can I use this? Or y'all want me to stand at the pulpit? No. I can't stand at a pulpit if I have to. Um, I have trouble doing that, but if you want me to, I will. Can you hear okay with this? If you can't. Um, faith that endures. And just real quick, and I'm going to make this real quick, because I... Hebrews... It's written almost like a sermon. And what's going on for this preacher in the church that he is speaking to? These people are slipping away. People are wanting to give up on the faith. They haven't experienced persecution to the point of death, of being killed, but they have experienced being different and struggling. And is it worth the the trying and the striving? Because they were looked down on in the culture. And so people are wanting to consider giving up and have started not attending when they would gather in homes and gather for worship, just trying to fade away. Was it worth it? And some were considering and had gone back to Judaism. Probably the majority were were Jews who had converted to Christianity. That's why it's referred to as the Hebrews. So I want you to get a little bit of idea of what's going on. So the first 10 chapters are talking about Jesus is better than the high priest, is better and what, what faith brings you and what being committed to Christ is being bigger than something than yourself. And then here in chapter 11, this definition of faith and then what is, what is referred to as the roll call of faithful, of the faithful. It kind of goes through the whole Old Testament and then even getting into some other New Testament figures, but goes through the whole Old Testament of talking about faithful people and what they have done and who they are. And so I want us to think briefly about this definition of faith. It doesn't encompass everything possible about faith, but it is a good way to think about this word, the Greek word pistis, which is faith. Y'all heard this passage before. Often if we're asked, what, what is faith? We'll quote this passage. It is the assurance of things not seen, the conviction of what is hoped for. And we'll read over that and go on, and we'll end up saying what we think it means, but sometimes in our lives and in stuff, and including me, we end up with this vague idea that it's this vague commitment to what is unseen or not knowable or... Or we will end up with this blind step of faith that goes against every conviction, it goes against anything that makes sense, and that's not really what those words mean and not really what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying the assurance or convincing, the word can mean convincing, that leads to conviction. Now, 
sometimes in our culture, and human beings have been human beings throughout history, are we convinced easily? Sometimes we may be, and sometimes we may be fooled. But this idea of convincing, it is not having confidence or insurance in something that is unimaginable, never been known before, never... The idea of I'm fairly convinced and assured that when I leave here and go out to my car, it's going to crank and get me home. Why would I be fairly assured of that? I heard one over there. I've done it before. It got me here. I knew I gassed it up yesterday. It's probably got gas. I do get it serviced fairly often. I expect it to run. If I had never seen a car before, ever, I might not be so certain what to do and what assured. That I want you to understand the idea here is not something you've never seen. It is assurance comes over time. You don't get convinced of something without relationship being involved. That's what's being talked about. You just spent 10 chapters talking about that. This idea to have the assurance is talked about who Christ is and Christ being better than the high priest and what Christ has done for you and what it is and being part of something. And the assurance of that that leads to conviction. And I just find it, this is kind of a side note. I maybe should keep off of side notes this morning. We may be running late. Uh, but this idea, I love that the third verse that it says everything created by the word of God. And what was created wasn't created from what was visible. This is just an interesting fact to me. Two, I mean, they felt like they were in a pretty modern world when that was written. Greco-Roman, starting to think about how things come together. But here we are 2,000 years later. Science and stuff. And you know what, what we've discovered about that sentence? It's true. That sentence is saying, there is a moment that God spoke, let there be light, that began the universe. And we're all made of the same stuff, and you can't see it. Protons, neutrons, and electrons, and it, we're all made of the same. It's true. That that's part of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Now, he's not speaking He's speaking to them. He's saying, God doesn't leave you abandoned without some development and assurance and lead you wanting to be convinced. But it's convincing that will eventually lead to conviction. And conviction involves obedience. Doing something with what you believe. And I've shared, and y'all have probably heard this illustration before. But it's one of the best I know of to illustrate faith. We got a couple of people from Meridian here. My goodness, they've heard me say this before. But uh, that idea—if you ever watched anybody on it—and you'll probably know where I'm going as soon as that, the tightrope walker, you know, walk across the Grand Canyon, or walk across, you know, on a tightrope across Niagara Falls, or just go to the circus and watch. We don't go to circus much anymore, uh, but watch somebody go across a tightrope. And they'll usually do it carrying a big pole first, right? 
and then they'll carry something else. And they may balance a chair on their head or their nose. Or then eventually they may do a, a unicycle across. I can't ride a unicycle not on a tightrope. To where that idea that you become convinced and assured that they'll, they're pretty good at that. And then the idea, if they ask the crowd when they have a wheelbarrow, who thinks I can make it across in the wheelbarrow? You'd probably say, yeah. I think you can. I have become assured and convinced that you can do it. And the next question is, then who wants to ride in the wheelbarrow? That is conviction. It is assurance and confidence that develops over time that he just spent 10 chapters trying to remind people of how it develops, but it leads to conviction of action. Because, see, people in... The church this preacher is talking to, some just going through the motions and wondering, are we making a difference? Is it, does it matter? And just slipping away. And he's wanting to let them know, yes, it matters. More than you can imagine. So that idea of faith, the, the, the wheelbarrow illustration of riding the wheelbarrow. And then he begins this roll call of the faithful. Of people throughout the Old Testament who have illustrated faith. What's the first one he mentions? We read it. Abel. Abel. Who is that? Abel is the second born son of who? Y'all know this story. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. First son was Cain. He was the firstborn son. Should grow up to take care of the family, all that stuff in that culture, and then when it was written down. Secondborn son, Abel. What happens? God accepts Abel's offering and doesn't accept Cain's. Cain eventually kills Abel. Why does God accept one and not the other? Maybe so. Well, the Bible will usually tell you. If you go and read Genesis chapter 4, the Bible usually wants, God wants you to know. He wants you to come led to assurance. What it says in the text is that Cain through the passing of time, gave God some fruit. That's what it literally says. As time went by, Cain offered some fruit. It's the way of saying, maybe after he fed his family, maybe after stuff, it was just as time went by, he offers God some fruit from his fields that he had planted. Abel offers God what? the first fruits of his flock. That's what it says in the text. That's where the difference is. Offers of his sheep or goats or whatever he had, his flocks, the firstborn he offers to God. Now, what does that say? I mean, you'll see that throughout Scripture. That is, that is the way of illustrating God 
if all my flocks die tomorrow, if there is a drought and they all starve to death, I believe in you. You get yours first. It all goes to you. It is an expression of assurance that leads to conviction. You really are God. Okay? Cain gives, over time, some fruit. And what does God do? Which one does he prefer, the gift? Abel. Prefers Abel's, but what does he do to Cain? What does he do to Cain? Cain offers the not-so-good gift. Does he say, oh, I smite thee, O Cain, you now will burn in the lake of fire for all eternity? No, he does not. He literally tells Cain, you get a do-over. That's what he says. It's kind of a Chuck paraphrase version. But he says, Cain. He starts talking to Cain and saying, Cain, I want you to get this right. I want to teach you how to get this right. Let's try again. I want want you to know how to get this right and really put me first because sin is crouching at the door, ready to consume you. It will destroy you, and I want you to get it right. Now, this is important. If you've been asleep, wake up. This is important, what I'm about to say. What is Cain's response to God telling him that? He eventually kills him, but this is key. He does not even acknowledge that God spoke. He does not even hear. We're not sure if he hears or not, but he doesn't acknowledge that he hears God. He doesn't even acknowledge God said anything. He's just focused on Abel. Begins to hear that voice in his head that shouts louder than God. We've heard it. Oh, it's Abel's out to get you. If you just take out Abel, Abel is the man, he's that spoiled little brother that everybody just loves and thinks is so cute and just gives stuff to when he's little. It's his fault. He's always one up to you. If you could just eliminate Abel, that's what he focuses on hearing. And what happens? It so consumes him till he kills Abel. What happens after he kills Abel? I'm going to go quick. God keeps talking. God then comes and speaks to Cain. It says his blood is crying out. Cain tries to lie about it and cover it up. And I'm not my brother's keeper and all that stuff. God keeps talking. And then he tells him there's consequences for what you have done. You'll be marked. People will know what you've done. And Cain's response is, I'm going to want, everybody's going to know and they're going to kill me. And God says to him, no, they're not. I will protect you. God still protects him, still offers provision, still cares for Cain. Now, that's the story. There is so much in that story, we could have a four-sermon series on it, but we're not. But here's the thing I want you to get. Here's what the writer of Hebrews 
one important nugget. It may not be the... Abel is the first person in Scripture to ever die as a consequence of sin. And who is he? He is the innocent, obedient, faithful, younger son. And whose sin causes his death? His brother's. It's not even his sin. Sound a little bit like the gospel? That Jesus died, the innocent, faithful one for our sin. And God still keeps talking to us and still wants to offer provision and care for us. It's the gospel, people. Genesis chapter 4. We won't go on with that story much more. Because there's there's so much stuff there. So much truth. But I want you to know the reason he's the beginning of this roll call of the faithful. There are three things that are true. That the writer of Genesis, the preacher here, wants the people to get. Of the stories that he shares through chapter 11. And the first is... The people that end up getting commended by God in Scripture for being faithful walked with God. God wanted to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God wanted to walk with Abel. God wanted to walk with Cain. Even after his sin, he still shows up and wants to be with him. They walk with God, and that is another way of saying they listened to God's voice and followed He will go on to talk about Abraham responding to God's voice, people responding to God's voice, hearing God's voice, following God's voice. It's a major theme all the way through the Bible. How does God talk? He can talk through Scripture, talks through people, talks through other people, talk through His Word, and also speak. And God can speak very loud and dramatically, usually when He shows up to, yeah, I'm going to be... But how does he really talk to the people listening? Jesus said you have to learn the shepherd's voice. One of my favorite illustrations, one of my favorite stories of Scripture is Elijah. After the major event, Mount Carmel, and then he runs off scared of Jezebel. Where he wants to die. He's waiting for God to show up and God doesn't speak through the earthquake and God doesn't speak through the fire and God doesn't speak through the mighty wind. How does God speak? A still, small voice. A whisper. You ever wonder why? We know the voice of the enemy. It screams at us. The voice of the enemy will yell at you. Tell you you don't measure up. Tell you what you just did. You can never, it's, oh, it will yell at you. Why does God speak in a whisper? If you're sitting next to the person on your pew and you want to whisper to them, is he ever going to stop talking? Maybe some of y'all are whispering that right now. What is true about the person that hears you? They have to be Very close. God speaks in a whisper because he is so close 
to us. Never leave us nor forsake us. He is so close and he wants us to come in closer. So the first thing about the people on the list, they walked with God and they listened. The second thing, and it's a theme for Hebrews, is suffering. Starts at the beginning, we're at the end. Christ suffered, gave his life for us. The suffer, we celebrate that in the cross. He tells them they haven't suffered to the point of the death, and then he lists some people that have. Suffering. I, I'm sorry. I wish I had the magic wand. Who in this world, who in this room, has never experienced suffering? If you're over the age of about 12, probably younger than that, but we'll just throw that out there, you know some suffering. Either your own, or either you've seen it. You've seen terrible things happen in the world. You know suffering is out there. You've lost a loved one. We know suffering. There is suffering in this world because of the brokenness of our sin. And it is a broken world. My family, it, it's, New Orleans has a, a museum month in August. If you belong to one museum, you can go to all the others in New Orleans for free. Just throw that out there next August. Go, well, you've got time to go now. But um, we went to the art museum. One of my favorite I won't say my favorite paintings, but we're sitting there looking at one that's called, I believe it's from the 1500s, Death Comes to the Banquet Table. And they're all just, you know, at the table, all this great-looking food and all the people just celebrating around this table. And back off in the shadow is a skeleton holding an hourglass. And as I was looking at that yesterday, I was reminded there's just brokenness and suffering. The question the writer of Hebrews says is, do you want your suffering to matter? You're going to suffer for the right reasons, for something bigger than you, for something that makes a difference, for something that is sacrificial, for what changes the world. Jesus promised you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be different. You're going to experience it. It is going to be uncomfortable. The light of Christ starts burning in you. People are either going to be attracted to it or they're going to want to put it out. It's a fact. But do you want your suffering to matter? Happen to think the people that the preacher is preaching to may have gotten it. Because some of them died so we can worship the risen Savior here on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later. Their suffering mattered. And, and the final thing. And he says there, they were commended are named and celebrated by God and claimed as righteous. This is the other fact of everybody on the list. They all messed up. 
Some of them on the list mess up really bad. Adultery, murder, cover it up. I mean, some of the roll call of the faithful is some pretty bad characters. But the point he's making is they are named and claimed by God as righteous. Because they're wanting to walk the journey. They repent after. Some of them may even not. But they're trying to make a next step with God, being on the journey. And they're suffering in what they're going through in life. They want it to be a bigger thing. And the main theme of the whole sermon is because Jesus, the heir of everything, gave it all. They can be named as righteous, and we can be named as righteous. And I don't know about you, but there are many times I think, gosh, is it worth it? Being a Christian, sometimes we turn it into just going through the motions. But I'm going to let you know that following God and being with him, that's why we do what we do. We had an altar rail full of children this morning. Do you know why we do what we do for them and with them? Is to bring them to the point that they're in relationship with that God who created them. Starting to hear his voice and learn to hear his voice better. That our lives will be part of something bigger. And that they are made righteous. That's why we do what we do. That is what faith that endures is. Let us pray. God, we praise you and thank you. That you give us so many examples and images and truth. About faith that endures. Countless ways that you want to assure us and give us confidence in you. Not that we get every question answered. We'll look at that next week. But bring us to the point that in relationship of learning to hear your voice, of growing and following with you. And sometimes we recognize your voice because we miss it and we do the wrong thing. And you still keep talking and you will come in close and whisper. May we let your voice, your whisper, drown out the enemy. May we surrender and follow and realize you claim us as righteous because of Christ. And that is why we celebrate. Invite your presence to work among us in whatever ways you lead. Touch us at the points of deepest need that only you know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As always, we invite you to join with this congregation and 
invitation of Christian discipleship, whether it is transferring from another church, whether it is reaffirming your faith, first-time commitment, or just want to acknowledge what God is doing, or as always, you are free to come and pray at this altar. As I shared with the acolytes this morning, I've said to you before, this just symbolizes to us where heaven and earth meet. God wants to meet with us, and so feel free to come and pray at the altar. But let us join together in our hymnal to number 529, How Firm a Foundation. Let's sing together. Receive this benediction. May you go in peace, experiencing God's grace, listening for his voice, letting him assure and lead you into a next step of faith that endures. And know that so often he whispers because God is so close. May we listen for it and respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen.